podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca on 99.94, the home of cricket audio. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentaries. Our shows include Double Century on the history of the game. West Indies on 99.94 is cricket's best Caribbean coverage. India on 99.94 has considered analysis from two professionals. England on 99.94 has the north and south of the game covered. South Africa on 99.94 is a forensic look at cricket in the Rainbow Nation. And Sri Lanka on 99.94 is our newest member. Find them all where you listen to podcasts or YouTube or just download our app. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. For those who may have missed it earlier this year, the Fairbreak Invitational was a tournament where some of the best women's players in the world and some of the most random turned up to play in Dubai under a Hong Kong banner. It was broadcast to the world and watched by a lot of people. It was, all things considered, a very successful tournament. But it was also, in many ways, quite different to most male T20 tournaments and even the women T20 tournaments. This episode of Red Inca is on one of cricket's more remarkable stories, how the Fairbreak International became the first global women's T20 league. To speak about it, we got on the founder, Sean Martin. Sean Martin's my name, and I'm the founder of Fairbreak. We chatted about the state of women's cricket before, his moonshot, dislike of the term associate, cricket politics, the future of the tournament, and what it means to watch his dream come true. You've just reminded me of when I met you, and neither of us can remember exactly when, but it was Lords, you're saying, which I'll take for granted uh, that you're right, but it was a Champions Trophy tournament. And the reason that meeting you always stuck in my brain, no matter what was going on with the tournament, was I think it's the only time in my life I've met someone who said they were going to start a women's international tournament. Uh, you know, I meet a new person every week who's telling me about the new men's tournament they're going to be starting. Yeah. Let's go back to the start, though. Where does the dream and inspiration for something like this come from? Because when you were thinking about women's cricket, no one was thinking about it anywhere near the level that you were. Well, it started... Back in 2011, 2012, uh, I was working with Lisa Stalaker. Um, I'd just written her book with her. Uh, we launched it in Mumbai. And when she retired in 2013 at the Women's World Cup in Mumbai, um, she, I think, was the highest paid female cricketer in the world on $15,000 a year, which included 15 public appearances. And um, we'd been monitoring the, the increase in the level of play and also the the viewer numbers and and all the all the conversations we'd had, all the work we'd done, you know, just trying to get a, a sponsorship for a female player uh, of any level was was excruciatingly difficult. Uh, and we talked about creating a global women's T20 tournament back then, a way of showcasing uh, just how good these players were, and also to drive the boards and the establishment to to look at the pay scales for women and what they should be, given the amount of time they were spending away, the amount of travelling they were doing, 
Now, Lisa was having to take long service leave and 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 sick leave to be released from you know cricket New South Wales to play for Australia. The conditions were you know horrendous. I remember the running joke with the Australian women was, "Do you want a baggy green or pay your mortgage?" So it was fairly <laughs> dire in in those days. Yeah, it doesn't sound that long ago, but in terms of women's cricket, it was a previous era because it isn't until 2014 that. England turn their women's team professional. Yep. And then it takes a long time for that to sort of filter through other nations. I know that, you know, places like India and Sri Lanka have the armed forces helping and, you know, there are benefactors and sponsors coming along. But it really was a completely amateur sport. I mean, you can, yep. you know, in Australia, $15,000 buys you about eight cans of Coke, right? So not that Lisa would <laughs> ever drink yeah. Coke, of course. But, yeah. you know, so in that way, it was completely amateur. So, you're, I, that's another reason why the original conversation you had with me just stuck with me so much because I was like, he does know that there's no structure here. It's it, you, you were literally, it sounded like you were you know, saying to me, do you know what, Joe, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move all of cricket to the moon because uh, it doesn't rain there. I mean, it was a great idea and I'd be fully supportive, but I'm not sure how you'd do it. It does feel like it did take a long time. So how how far into your your plans did you just go, this is this is a monumental task when we're really talking about an amateur sport. Well, I think one of the great things that happened at the start was I was incredibly naive around just how difficult a task it would be. And I also thought that, you know, our intentions were really pure around what we were doing. We weren't looking to be rebels or to uh, create problems for anyone. I just saw that there was a great opportunity here and, and that the opportunity wasn't being realised. And I think the naivety around that really sort of kept me going for a few years. And then it did become very difficult in terms of uh, working my way around, you know, approved and disapproved cricket and um, sanctioning of tournaments and uh, the, the politics and the logistics around all of that and then trying to find the right partners and people who would uh, be supportive of the whole concept. And, and also, I've always believed that the two games are intrinsically different they might fall under the, the the banner of cricket, but but the the, the two things are, are so different it's not funny. But the women's game was always being presented as a cut down version of the men's game, and I think once you started talking to the players and and looking at how you could structure something, I think there was a a different way of of presenting the product, so to speak than what we were seeing. Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. And I would have thought that especially I wouldn't say there would have been pressure but there would have been times when you thought to yourself, well, there are some people starting T20 leagues for men with very little money. 
with very little expertise, certainly not the due diligence or research and everything else that you put into it. Is there ever a time where you thought, is there a way of either combining it and having, you know, a male and female run together? Or, you know, is there a way of getting the money through the men? Or was it you were so, uh, you know, gung-ho in the women's league, you never really thought of there was another, you know, an, another way of getting the men uh, to, to help out? Oh, no, I, that, those those thoughts were definitely there. And we explored that many options and structures. But there was just no appetite uh, for what we were doing, you know, trying to get uh, someone to you know, look at a franchise model, for example, for a women's league at that time was that was going to the moon. And there were lots of conversations with people around, well, so what city are they going to represent? How are you going to present the teams? And and I'd always looked at all of these other sports around the world, like Tour de France, for example, where you ride for a brand. So I always felt that that was the way to go in the women's game. Um, that you know you would have teams <clears throat> represented by a brand, and and you would have players from anywhere in the world playing in your team. Um, so it was there was always that bigger, expansive view. But when I started to sit down with broadcasters in India or potential investors, that they, they they seriously did look at me like I had two heads or I was nuts. Um, so that was very difficult to to get any men's league or people that were introduced interested in in a in a men's uh, franchise to look at what we were doing we also had some principles that that didn't align with them as well where we wouldn't take money from gambling and, and betting agencies because you know they're intrinsically linked with domestic violence and family dislocation and we always just felt from day one that you, you couldn't have those associated with the women's league it was you know incongruous to do that it's interesting because you did start so early and obviously the, the, you know, the most recent tournament or your first tournament is almost 10 years after your original idea and things have changed. Like I quite often get people say to me, you know, I want to invest in, in T20 and, and whatever. And I was like, great, find your local women's tournament and invest in it. And they, and they still look at me a little bit confused. And I said, well, where do you think you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck right at the moment? And also... If you can get a long-term deal in women's sport, you don't know what that league's going to be like in five or seven years' time, right? It could absolutely go through the moon. Did you ever feel that change? Or And we'll get to some of the many different difficulties you had. But with you, did you feel that women's sport was changing? I remember, I think it was when the WBBL started. We'll get to that later. But when Rebel Sport had a Kylie, a Kylie Clark, Michael Clark's wife as their um, ambassador and not one of the yeah. players from the WBBL I don't think someone, a major company in Australia would do that anymore or in England would do that anymore because now it's so uh, targeted towards, you know, getting as many women athletes as possible involved in those sorts of sponsorship deals. Well, we could certainly feel a change. We could we could see what was happening all around us. I mean, some some people have written about that, you know, we were, we were a catalyst for, for a lot of that change because of what we were talking about and what we were, what we were trying to do. So... Yes, it was it was very um, very obvious to us uh, that there was a wave of interest and support uh, coming. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And I suppose the other big question I have for you, and I'm not sure I've seen you answer this specifically, or maybe I missed it when I was doing my research. But when do you get involved with women's cricket? And you know, so I coached women's cricket a little bit back in the '90s, and I used to love watching it. Used to love watching women's basketball as well. 
Even then, I would have thought, and I've got a lot of friends who are women's sports writers who say, I'd love to cover women's sport more, but we don't get paid and we get pigeonholed and we end up in the corner. And I I think I felt a similar thing at times. If I spend all my time writing about women's sport, I have to work for a fraction of the money. It's not that many people within sport don't love it. It's just the time and effort. You basically, I wouldn't say you put your career on hold because obviously you have your other business interests, but you put so much time into this. The level of Love you must have for women's cricket must be absolutely, you know, almost unparalleled. So where does that start and how does that, uh, how did you maintain that? Well, I think it's more of a love for cricket, not just women's cricket. I mean, I I played my first game against a women's team in 1970 uh, when I was at Chevalier College in Barrel and we played the Frenchman first 11, you know. So I always had an appreciation of, um, of women playing cricket. So, you know, I, I don't know really what my thought processes were around that. It's just that they were cricketers. You know, I think my first girlfriend was a cricketer at Skeggs in Moss Vale. You know, so I, I, I never had this notion that they were there was a division around gender with the game. And I think Jeff Lawson shares the same view. So I've had people around me for a long time that, that just love the game of cricket. And um, I think... Once I started doing some work with Lisa and, and Alex Blackwell and and I could see the talent and I just I've always did I've always appreciated talent. It doesn't matter what sport it is. And I started using a few of the players in corporate cricket matches, really, because I thought, well, they weren't getting paid to start with, so here was a way to pay them. And it was also a <laughs> way of demonstrating to a lot of corporates just how skillful these these players were. So it's it's more of a love of cricket. And I suppose I don't like inequality. I, I really don't like that at all. And I, I don't think it's right and proper that two people doing exactly the same job under the same pressures with the same expectations should be remunerated completely differently. And that's just, I just believe that. Women's International League is what you were trying to do originally. And you and I know a lot about this, although probably back when you were starting this, you and I didn't know as much about this at the time. Most leagues are run by individual boards and everyone was always trying to do international leagues. For instance, the first failed South African league was supposed to be an international league. You had the global T20 in Canada. So we've had attempts to have international leagues before and we now have the new UAE league with a few of the IPL owners and, and the American ownerships involved there. The reason that we don't have leagues like that is because generally most of our leagues are domestic-based. So you actually want to have a TV audience who's automatically going to come to it. But the other problem can be, uh, especially with the men, that these players have all these different contracts and then an independent person comes in and says, well, we'll have five Pakistanis and three Sri Lankans in our team. And someone else says, well, we'll have eight West Indians and two Nepalese players. in our." And so suddenly the boards go, whoa. And that's exactly what's happened with this UAE league. The uh, boards are already starting to be, you know, so some really big concerns. Big Bash suddenly has a lot more money available to pay their men's players than years gone past. When you were starting this, though, it kind of, that wasn't a thing. We weren't even thinking about it. But you basically, in, in doing what was the most obvious thing to you, which is there's no point doing a local women's league. If we do an international, we can get women from all around the world together. That makes a lot of sense. But you ran into a tidal wave of opposition, even though at that stage, as we've talked about, women's cricket was almost un- entirely amateur. Yeah, that's that's very true. But I just think that there was a potentially a lack of understanding uh, around the game um, from a women's perspective. 
Well, we spend a lot of time talking to the players that we we work with, and we we like to find out what they what they want to do, what they want to wear, how they want to play, what are the things that are important to them as as players. So, I think we were doing our due diligence for a long, long time in a way that possibly many other people in cricket weren't. Um, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but they, you know, they, they do see everything in cricket uh, generally through, you know, a male prism. And I think if you, you know, sort of take your male cricket head off and start looking a little bit more expansively, then your perceptions of everything do, do change and you see potential an opportunity where others may not. And, and, and also, the audience for women's cricket is quite different to the men's. It's, it's much more disparate. The, the game attracts players in different parts of the world that the men's game does not necessarily attract. And there, there are superb athletes. And, and it, it doesn't take long to work out that a lot of the great players that you don't see are actually in, in tiny countries. Um, and they may not, uh, their country may not be a great great team but the individual has a skill set that is comparable to anyone anywhere in the world what a lot of those players lack is game awareness because they just don't play enough but but some of the players that that we research and we 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 look for are, you know they're only playing men's cricket in their own countries as female players because they're so good so once you remove the gender tag and you just look at the cricketer then that changes i think where the opportunity lies for everyone. You alluded to this before that, and people have certainly suggested this, that certainly the women's big bash, which is, I suppose, now the, you know, the main pioneering um, league that sort of changed women's cricket, came about because it looked like at various times you were going to beat them to the punch. And, you know, I think there are obviously other pressures. Uh, you know, James Sutherland was the Cricket Australia CEO and happened to have a daughter who was coming along that was very good. Uh, you know, there were lots of different things that, that came along. Plus, plus the, the pressure in, in Australia, as we talked about before, the Australian women were so good, probably got more TV coverage than even the English women did. Um, and, you know, things like the Zoe Goss incident, you know, going back years when she took Brian Lara out in a charity game, all these little things that the Australian women did. It made sense that that was going to be the first league. But the way I've heard it from within the women's game is that you shamed a lot of the boards. Uh, it's probably not a word that you would like to use, but no. you shamed them in a way that they suddenly went, wait a minute, we can't allow this random person to come in and do this when we haven't done anything with it with far more resources than he had. I would assume you do see the link between you pushing for this and these other leagues existing, even if you wouldn't put it in those sorts of terms. Obviously, that's the case. I mean, I'm very pleased that all of those leagues exist. That that was, as I said to you, it was never about competing with anyone. It was not about, you know, stealing someone's thunder. My intentions were never to embarrass anyone. It was just, look, this needs to be done. Let's get on and do it. Um, and again, it was that naivety right from the word go that I felt people would embrace what we were attempting to do and go, well, okay, here's a great idea. Let's support this. Let's let's get into a you know a joint venture here. Let's get into a partnership and and make this something really special. That's only started to really emerge a little bit since the tournament in Dubai. You, you know this, Jared, as, as well as I do. There's a lot of self-interest in international cricket. It's a very political environment, and we're not. You know, we're we're not part of of any of that. And I don't have, really have an ego about this at all. I, it's not. 
Uh, you know, the, the players have talk about a fair break family. They talk about a movement. These are all words that they use. You know, I, I've not coined these phrases. I just enjoy the fact that they get to showcase what they can do and that we can build something that's uh, long-lasting for them. You obviously spent quite a lot of time changing uh, – well, you spent a lot of time developing the idea and as women's cricket is changing around you, you then pivot towards associate players and partly that is because you realise that there is a chance to affiliate with a smaller board and partly that is because, as you said before, you start to realise there are all these women around the world who are playing men's cricket in random countries that – no one's paying any attention to them. Um, you know, I, you know, I get messages from uh, these sorts of players all the time, and I know they're out there as well. I've forwarded some of their YouTube videos to you in case yes. you need any more players at times. So yeah, exactly, that decision is huge when you do that. How much of it is born out of practicality because you did need to partner with someone? And how much is it born out of, well, wait a minute, if the WBBL and the Women's 100 and there's going to be a women's IPL and all these things, we have to do something different now than what we originally planned. It could be equally important, but just important in a different way. I think yeah, there's a, there's a number of things wrapped up in that. Yes, we were being ping-ponged between different boards and the ICC in terms of getting sanctioning. So it was a matter of finding a board that would work with us that was definitely a priority. It was also the fact that there were great players in all of these countries. And if you're going to run a global tournament, then it needs to be a global tournament. So you have to involve all players. I don't particularly like, and we, we argy-bargy about this internally with, with our people, You know, I don't particularly like the term associate nation players. I, I don't necessarily like the designating of players in particular areas uh, because it immediately throws up a notion of uh, skill level or ability or and I just don't think that's right uh, but that's that's a philosophical point that we could go on with forever the thing was you look at the tour de france you know the, you, you know your your team in the tour de france comes from everywhere you know your only criteria is that you can ride and ride well. So I just felt that the, the only criteria that we're here was, do you have a skill set that we need to showcase and can we develop it? The other thing too is that I don't think the major board playing countries need another cricket tournament. Um, so <laughs> again, it, cricket's the fastest growing female sport in Asia. Why would you not base a tournament there? You know, Why would you not look at the USA for a women's tournament? Why would you not look at these other uh, opportunities to do what you're doing? You know, why limit it to just, you know, in England, Australia and in India? So my next question then is, obviously, you, you made all those sound decisions. You're talking about, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years of preparation to get there. Sponsors or funding, TV rights. This is something that didn't exist before. It's not a particularly easy sell. In some ways, it's easier because you can go to markets that probably didn't usually have cricket sponsorship and say to them, hey, mm. we've got this thing and it's going, to, you know, it's going to appeal to a whole new different market. But you're also saying to these sponsors, but it's never existed before. So we've had zero views and we're hoping we're going to get this many views. Yeah. Uh, how do you get the money for a, a tournament like this and how much comes out of your personal wealth, people you know, you know, angel investors that you've been tapping up for the last 10 years and all that sort of stuff, and how much comes out of sort of hard cash from TV rights and um, sponsors? It's a mix of all of that, and it's still a mix of that every day. 
was you know, particularly difficult. You know, you're selling a concept, you're selling a, a dream. As you said, you, you've got nothing to, to go by apart from what you can show people in terms of the skill sets. And that was why it was important to play at, at, at Wormsley in 2018. It was important to play. It was important to start putting uh, what was a representative of a fair break team on, on the field playing. We've had wonderful support from Mr Venkatesh with GenCore. I mean, he's he's passionate about what we do. We've had a great title sponsor in Dubai. We still seek sponsors all the time. It's still a very hard sell. We did get some revenue out of broadcast rights in this first, first tournament. We're now, at the moment, negotiating, hopefully, to do a larger uh, digital rights deal globally with a major uh, platform. Um, so it, that's a constant day-to-day piece of what we do. And, and it is still a very, very hard sell in terms of, even though we put incredible numbers in front of people, you know, our, uh, I think our our global reach over the last 12 months was over 4 billion. You know, we have, a, we have an American company that monitors our media. I mean, they're staggering numbers. I mean, the 90 players in Dubai had a, have online followings of over 28 million. So when you're talking to brands, I mean, these are incredible numbers uh, to put in front of them, but there's still this perception that, oh, it's women's sport. And, you know, you go, well, it doesn't matter if it's women's tiddlywinks, you know, do you want your brand in front of that many eyeballs? So it is it is a constant, you know, conversation around the, the value that they place on what they're seeing. And it felt from the outside, compared to maybe some of the T20 leagues I'd seen, that, I mean, it had elements of low budget and high budget, if that makes sense, yep. uh, to the tournament. Are you expecting a similar level in the next tournament? Are you expecting to up it? Uh, you know, it's. I know you've got the fair break team on tour at the moment, so obviously there's still funding and, and money and sponsorship available for all those sorts of things. But the next tournament is going to be in Hong Kong, if yes, I remember that's correctly. Right, yeah. And yeah, and so you know, you're going home <laughs> for, for your <laughs> yeah, exactly, tournament. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, is it going to be? At the similar level, is it going to be bigger or smaller? What are you thinking for that next one? Oh, look, I think this will be a step up from what you saw in Dubai. I mean, Dubai, we had to pivot to very quickly and very late in the piece because of the 21-day quarantining situation in, in Hong Kong. That hampered us in terms of any ticket sales or corporate box sales. So it was very difficult, you know, but it was very important that we we played the tournament. It was incredibly important that we we got that tournament functioning that people could see what we were about i expect hong kong to be a step up from that um we will have crowds we will have corporate boxes you know we will have a full stadium the majority of the time uh, we'll use exactly the same production company we used in in dubai they were amazing and in the pictures they created uh, i think you know jeff and i think some of the best cricket pictures you'll you'll get and they filmed in a way that was a little different too. They really foc- we asked them to focus on the players and in the emotion of those those players, and and they they did a great job around that. So I think you'll see a lift of what you saw in Dubai, and and also you'll see many of the same players. <clears throat> um, you know, they a lot of them are very much aligned with the with the teams that they were they played in. You know, many of them have said, "Don't you dare put me in another team. I'm I'm a." I'm a warrior from, you know, it was a Hayley Matthews comment, you know. Uh, uh, so I think you'll see um, a raise in a level of everything included. It's, in, it's interesting what happens, Jared, if I can just say this to you, that the associate nation players, for want of a better word, that, that come into um, each of these teams, 
have great skill sets. Um, as I said to you before, they they often lack game awareness, and it doesn't take very long in that environment for that to change quite quickly. So their level of play lifts. But a really interesting thing happens with the more established players, where they'll often come up to you and say, "Gee, I've got some performance anxiety here, Sean." You know, like all of these players are looking at me now as like, you know, well, you're pretty special, so what are you going to do? So they lift. So the whole the whole standard lifts right across the board. And I think you'll probably see that more and more as we as we as we go along because you know, some of the players that came in from, you know, Bhutan and Malaysia and that they know Rwanda, they know now what to expect. So they're they're already getting ready. Mm. I suppose they're being professionalized as well, right? Yep. So before it's a hobby and they're very good at it and they've got skills. And now they're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, I want to go back and maybe I want to go to other leagues and, and, you know, play professionally around the world. So it makes sense. So this was the first time, you know, 50 associate nation players were contracted and paid. So when you remove the cricket piece from from what we do, it's a social impact uh, business as much as anything. Um, For many of those women, you know, playing two tournaments with us, they'll buy their own home in their respective countries you know that that that's unheard of for them so leave the cricket out of it yeah i mean you're building a profession that didn't exist you know in those places that's right. so yeah. if nothing else even if they're from a more, more wealthy country and this is just a top up now they're thinking well wait a minute that is a career so i i, I think from that perspective it's remarkable and it also shows that how the men have missed out on doing a similar thing because we know how, you know, occasionally we get a player from Nepal that no one has ever heard of before. And, you know, now we're getting Americans coming through and there's no doubt that these sorts of things could happen. So we talked about the future and we've talked about the past and how hard it was for you to get to that level. I think I might've watched the first game or the second game. And I remember thinking, what is Sean thinking (laughs) now? I spent four years trying to get death of a gentleman up. And, you know, uh, I'm two years into a current business plan that we've been getting up. And, you know, I know what it's like to invest long periods of yourself. L- forget the money. That's terrifying. But uh, <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to know how much you, you've invested no, in no. that. But, but yes, I know what it's like to invest yourself in something like that. And also for the times where you think there's no way this can work. It's all going to fall apart. I made a mistake here. This won't work. And then you're there in Dubai and you're watching that first game. What, what did you feel actually watching this thing that – kind of felt at times like it would never exist exist right in front of you. Uh, well, people asked me that, you know, in the week leading up to that first game, and I just said, look, I, I just want to see the first ball bowled. That's all I want to see. It was a quite a surreal experience, actually, because I'd lived with this tournament in my head for so long that I wasn't surprised, if, if that makes any sense to you at all. It was like, well, yeah, this is what I always saw. So... It wasn't until towards the end of the tournament that um, I started to appreciate a few things about it a bit more. I actually find it quite hard to talk about, Jared, to tell you the truth. I can tell that in your voice. It's such a ridiculously long journey to get to a place and then to watch. And I know exactly what you mean when you say when other people are like, surely you can't believe this is happening. But in your head, it had been happening for 10 years. Yeah. And so it's not the same as it is for everyone else. And I know probably more than most people as someone who was there towards the beginning of, you know, when you had that original idea, the way that people thought about women's cricket and the way that people thought about your idea to go from there to the tournament, it's just, it still shocks me that fair break exists uh, because (laughs) that is not, when I started working professional cricket, 
we were nowhere near this. And to get so, so far to the point where, as you said, you have players from Bhutan <laughs> traveling to Dubai and playing in front of, you know, Adam Collins and, you know, <laughs> and Jeff Lawson commentating. The whole thing is just, it's almost a fantasy. And, it, you know, it feels like you've written your own dream out and uh, someone else filmed it for you. You paid them, of course, but they still filmed it for you. It's ever-evolving too. Like, I mean, I went from being a lunatic to a genius overnight when I took the numbers off the shirts and put the flags on. So the thing, little things like that, you know, I, I just thought, well, numbers mean nothing to me in cricket. I, you know, Route 66 is the only one I remember. Uh, so how, how do you exemplify the diversity in the game? So it became a geography lesson for a lot of people, you know, like what's that flag and what they play cricket there, do they? And um, Because even in the – you would know this, Jared, even in people who, are, who consider themselves cricket buffs, you're constantly educating them about where cricket's played. And we've got a player from France with us, you know, played against Scotland today. You know, we've got a Swedish left arm in swing bowler. I mean, they just look at you like you're, you know, some sort of loony. But that's a fact. That's the, the game is, is that broad. It's that expansive. And interestingly, if I collect myself for a minute and go back to that first game, Stara Callis came up and stood next to me during that first game. She wanted to be there. And you look at someone like Stara, who's played with us for four years now and is now a fully contracted player with Yorkshire and, you know, is one of the best players in the world. I mean, she she, stand, she bats out there with Sophie Devine and, and all these other great players and is not out of place at all. You know, like she's, she's there and that's a fact. And you know, I think you'll see that happening more and more even with two or three of the other players that will come through in Hong Kong. So, I mean, that's, I suppose, the final question that is, you started this because you thought there was inequity within the game, which mm. clearly there was. You then found more inequity, really, as you, as you, you know, even as women's cricket got bigger, you, you found other, other ways of doing it. But realistically, it's probably for you, the individual stories that when you, maybe when you first thought about this, it was more about, can you get women paid? And now it's maybe more about these individual women and, you know, the effect that you've been able to have on them with the thing that was in your head. Yeah, I think that's probably very, very true. I think the other thing that needs to be um, pointed out here is that the large number of people that work on this project with me, it's not all me. I mean, it's, yep, obviously Mm. I'm important to the whole thing, but when you have people like Jeff Lawson who devote themselves to it, you know, Alex Blackwell, Sanamir, you know, my my extended team, you know, Vidya Rao, who's run our Indian operations since 2013. You know, there's a lot of people that have invested a lot of themselves in this. So, you know, that's one of the reasons it's successful also. And the players themselves, I mean, they're, they're our greatest advocates. You know, they, they are amazing. You know, they, they're the ones that talk about the family and the movement and uh, all the other things that go on around it. So... <clears throat> I think that's part of where the whole business is going now, I suppose. And, and we do other things, you know, all our clothing's made out of recycled plastic. You know, some of the branding from Dubai is being shipped at the moment to Hong Kong and being repurposed. Then it goes to a company in America and gets turned into shopping bags and pencil cases for kids. So we try to look at how we use the game, how we use what we do across a broad range of 
of um, of areas, you know, sustainability. You know, you think about the branding that's used in sport. Where does that go? It usually goes in a landfill. Why? Mm. There, you know, Professor Deidre McGee did this great piece of uh, breast research in Dubai into female cricketers that had never been done before around sports bras. And you'll see that research paper released in a few months. We're co-authors of that. So there's lots of things that you can do with what we're doing that have an impact beyond cricket. And, and they're the other interesting aspects of, of what goes on. Yeah, I would say as a cricket historian, it's just going to be really interesting to see how you're eventually banned from cricket for being too progressive. So I'd like to say <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jared. I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by the Red Cricket. Podcast Network.